Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I'm joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian. And before the end of this podcast, I will have satisfaction. (laughs) There's a lot of satisfaction being demanded in this film that we're about to talk about. They're so polite about wanting to kill each other and hurt each other, but they just do it in such lovely, you know, gentlemanly, civilized, chivalrous ways, Josh. They do. That is kind of the key element here of this this veneer of civility that masks a lot of violence and viciousness. Uh, And what is that? Well, uh, we in this season of Awesome Movie Year have been talking about the films of 1975, and we wanted for these bonus episodes to talk about uh, there's so many movies. I think this was the thing that we kept coming back to is like this is such an iconic year. There's so many huge movies, and we felt like there were certain ones that we didn't want to pass by. And especially when we posted on our social media that this was our season coming up and asked you, the listeners, which films from 1975 are you interested in? Do you like the most? And this movie was the one that was mentioned the most times. It is Stanley Kubrick's Barry Lyndon. And so I think we all were curious to see this movie. We hadn't seen it before and decided that uh, thanks to that interest, we were going to give this a shot as a bonus. And so if you're listening to this on the Patreon, thank you. And uh, if you're listening to it later, also thank you. You asked for it, we deliver because we, we care. We provided satisfaction. <laughs> we did. I, and it's before the end of the podcast. Yeah, already. That's over now. That's it. Thanks for, <laughs> thanks for subscribing. That's short. That's extra money. Mini episode. Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, and this is our, uh, I think this is our third go round with Stanley Kubrick. We talked about his debut film, Fear and Desire, as well as The Shining from 1980. So two kind of bookends of his career. And here we are closer towards that uh, end with The Shining with Barry Lyndon in 1975. And this is a movie that I think we actually maybe mentioned on The Shining because of there was sort of a mixed response to this film that he ended up deciding to do something more populist when he went to uh, do The Shining uh, and adapt a Stephen King novel. I mean, it still made money, this movie. And uh, with all Kubrick movies, right, they're always being reassessed and like, you know, uh, and later people are like, oh, yeah, he was right. He's he's a genius. We're, We're dumb for doubting him. Indeed. Yeah. And looking at this, it didn't seem to me like it was exactly a failure. It grossed $31.5 million on its budget of 11 million. So, I mean, that's not a huge bump, but it's not a huge failure either. It was nominated for seven Oscars, including Best Picture, Best Director for Stanley Kubrick, Best Adapted Screenplay, also for Kubrick, who adapted the novel by William Makepeace Thackeray. Uh, It won four of those Oscars for art direction, costume design, cinematography, and for the score. So it, it certainly like was high profile in that sense. And, you know, one of the more notable movies of 1975. Uh, one of the, yeah, it's a Kubrick movie. It's got to be notable. Come on, man. Right. But not only that, it's not a movie that, that, that flopped, that no one went to see or no one paid attention to or no one liked. 
Yeah, it's a long movie. It's over three hours. It has an intermission. So you're spending all day at the theater if you want. But, um, you know, like you said, Josh, uh, we were all intrigued having never had seen this one before. Right, right. I mean, it is long and I think that's maybe an obstacle. Although this season, man, between this and uh, Jean Dielman, we've really uh, dived in on the three hour movies. Meh, I'm fine. Yeah. All right. Uh, I did also win two BAFTAs out of five nominations and was nominated for two Golden Globes. So plenty of awards attention for this film. And as you said, it's Kubrick. Like, no matter what, it's going to get a level of attention. Right. He's see, he never won an Oscar. So like, what does the Oscars even mean anymore? You can just slap people on the face and then collect your Oscars and then like, whatever, dude, get it together. All right. I don't think that really has anything to do with Stanley Kubrick. Not <laughs> Timely pop culture. Yeah, yeah, really. Right. Yeah. That happened two years ago. <laughs> Thanks for that comment. Remember that uh, bit with Billy Crystal? That was good. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, interestingly enough, though, this got kind of mixed reviews from critics um, who had certain issues with it, uh, you know, in terms of its pacing and its tone and less so the visuals. And that was what was mostly praised. So. Uh, Roger Ebert was very positive, though. He said, this must be one of the most beautiful films ever made. And yet the beauty's not in the service of emotion. It's disdainful of it. Against magnificent backdrops, the characters play at little intrigues and scandals. They cheat at cards and marriage. They fight ridiculous duels. They're at their most appealing when they're childish. This is a film with a backdrop of a war that engulfed Europe and it hardly seems to think human events are worth the effort needed to scrutinize them. By placing such little characters on such a big stage, by forcing our detachment from them, Kubrick supplies a philosophical position just as clearly as if he'd put speeches in his characters' mouths. Some people find Barry Lyndon a fascinating, if cold, exercise in masterful filmmaking. Others find it a terrific bore. I have little sympathy for the second opinion. How can anyone be bored by such an audacious film unless they've become such passive filmgoers that no movie can involve them unless it caters to them? Oh, well, that could be most of mainstream films today that he's talking about, I feel like, right? Yeah. Uh, no, it's, it's again, whatever you think of it, it is amazing looking. It's got a really great score, right? And... um I, the one thing that was he was saying the characters are at their most likable. And I'm like, I don't know if any of the characters are likable. And that's that's uh, admirable. Yeah, I mean, I definitely don't think they're likable. He says appealing, which I suppose could theoretically mean just interesting to watch. But yeah, I mean, I have to admit that I am one of these people who I was bored at a certain point. I got bored. with. Yeah, well, movie. Ebert just took it to you, didn't he? He did. He did, and I'll take it. Maybe um, you need to be spoon-fed more of your mass media consumption, Josh. Yeah, I think I do. So, I, you know, honestly, I might have been more bored at times during this movie than I was in Jean Dielman. Oh, hmm. Shots fired. Barry Lyndon versus Jean Dielman. Maybe those two should hook up. Yeah, they should hook up or have a <laughs> duel or both. I don't know. What kind of crossover have we envisioned here? You know, he might be trying to shoot while she's trying to stab. And it's uh, it's a you know, we know he has a pension for the ladies and she'll take some money to do the sex with the men. I feel like uh, after John Dealman, this will be the next one in our series of John Dealman sequels. Yeah. Barry Lyndon versus John Dealman. <laughs> yeah, it's that like Alien versus Predator. It is just like <laughs> Alien versus Predator. 
<laughs> really the same thing. So <laughs> who does want to I mean I feel like we have to bring this project to fruition. Hinden versus John Dealman. Like I want to write that right now. I look forward to reading that. You're so, co-writing it. I can't wait. Vincent Canby in the New York Times said, Barry Lyndon, Stanley Kubrick's handsome, assured screen adaptation of William Makepeace Thackeray's first novel is so long and leisurely, so panoramic in its narrative scope, that it's as much an environment as it is a conventional film. Its austerity of purpose defines it as a costume movie unlike any other you've seen. One of Mr. Kubrick's boldest decisions was to make the film as beautiful as it is. Good movies should not be too beautiful. It's thought to be distracting, if not a substitute for content. Yet the John Alcott camera work, which transforms scene after scene into something that suggests a Gainsborough or a Watteau, has the function of setting us apart from Barry's adventures, rather than tricking us into involvement. How many times, Josh, have you been to the movie theater or watched the film and thought to yourself, you know... This movie would have been much better if it wasn't so beautiful. Yeah. I mean, I think the theoretical idea here is that you could say that this movie is style over substance, that it's focused more on the images than it is on the story or the characters, which I don't think is the case, as maybe despite the fact that I might have been bored, it doesn't seem to me that Kubrick isn't paying attention to the narrative. Yeah, I agree. This guy, what is he? He's like one of these Wes Anderson haters all of a sudden. Mm, well, I do hate Wes Anderson, but that's a, whole, <laughs> that's a whole separate podcast that we've already done. A few times, I think. Yes, indeed. So on the more negative end of things, Charles Champlin in the Los Angeles Times said, Stanley Kubrick's Barry Lyndon is the motion picture equivalent of one of those very large, very heavy, very expensive, very elegant, and very dull books that exist solely to be seen on coffee tables. It is ravishingly beautiful and incredibly tedious in about equal doses. A selection of salon-quality still photographs, as often as not, very still indeed. Barry Lyndon is said to have taken 300 shooting days, and the patient craftsmanship, precisely the right tree, field, vista, wall, trench, farmhouse, townhouse, castle, chateau, the thousands of extras in precisely the right period costumes, Everything seen in precisely the right light of day or night is discernible in every frame. It is only that it is not enough. Oh, oh there was no more. Well, there was more, but that was I'm the just, excerpt I'm that I that I used. <laughs> so, uh, Josh, I have to say that I feel like they're missing the point. You can't just say the visuals are one thing, but it's not part of the actual film like they seem to be separating the visuals from the content of the film but clearly the visuals here are of utmost importance to what he's trying to convey in the film i mean this is this takes place in you know he goes from rags to riches and like you know all that uh high society stuff the look is important he's he wants it to look like a painting i feel like in a lot of instances and it would be like you know uh, did you think of Marie Antoinette, you know, the the Sofia Coppola movie? It's another one where you, you would argue maybe that, but it all works together. I don't understand this. this criticism. Yeah, I mean, I didn't ultimately care for this that much, but I agree with you that you can't entirely divorce those two things that as a filmmaker, Kubrick is always thinking 
in all of those terms. And he's not going to approach something visually without that being a, 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 a part of the intention of what he's trying to convey with the film. And so I agree. I, I felt like over time, it was sort of stultifying the visuals as well as the narrative and the characters who, as you say, are not only so unlikable, but are so you know, reserved in a way like you were talking about with the, the way they demand their duels that I, I felt like I couldn't connect to any of them. And the visual style, as beautiful as it is, is also sort of distancing because it looks like these carefully composed paintings. And so what, what kind of impressed me at first, after so much time, I just detached from it entirely, I think. And I think that's okay. That's fair. But I think maybe, you know, do you think he is commenting on a specific group of people and, you know, people who admire them just for wealth are missing the point They're They have many problems and many uglinesses, just like any other group of people. Yeah, I think you're right. I think he is commenting that I kind of felt like I understood that. And oh, it, it you're using my John Dealman argument. I'm right, right. Aren't you? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think in a way, maybe he's trying to do similarly to what what Ackerman is doing, where it's like, it's important to immerse you in this for a really, really long time to give you the sense of the arc of this guy's ridiculous life and the consequences of his efforts to climb the social ladder and become one of these rich people whose lives really aren't necessarily better. Um, but eventually, I just didn't really care anymore about him. And I think whether you like the main character of the movie or not, you still need to care or have some interest in what happens to them next. And yes. I so didn't care about what happened to Barry after a while. And I think it's not just Kubrick, but Ryan O'Neill is not very good in this film. And it may be in part because he was directed to perform a certain way, but I think there's just this kind of void with the main character here. Yeah. And you like Ryan O'Neill though in other films. I have. I mean, Paper Moon is the big one that I found him very charming in. I don't know that I've seen a ton of other Ryan O'Neill movies. And, and, you know, later in his career, he did more B-movie stuff and, and TV and whatever. And I haven't seen a ton of that. But I just think if I whatever I've seen him in, he's he's played. This isn't the right kind of character for him to play. You know, he right. plays someone kind of goofy or, you know, some sort of doofus or whatever. And and this schemer did not seem like the right role for him. I mean, he's a schemer in Paper Moon. I guess so. But he's more of like a jovial, like, uh, I, I don't know. It just seemed like not the quite the personality that he's able to convey. All right. And I mean, maybe that's Kubrick, you know, just like he's shooting in a certain way and he's structuring the movie in a certain way. He may have directed the performers to be more subdued to kind of capture the, the tone of I mean, it's interesting with Ryan O'Neill because I, I think they said to get financing, Kubrick needed to cast a top 10 box office star. And O'Neill had like one year on that list, maybe two. And that's how he got cast in the film. But yes, he's a very, you would not think of like a typical Kubrick star as Ryan O'Neill. Right. And I think with Kubrick, maybe that was important for financing, but he's also the kind of filmmaker who's not going to compromise on something like that if he doesn't feel like it's the right decision for his film. Well, yes, he's known to fire actors quite often. Right. Or and whatever it is, you know, he's not going to 
change his approach in any particular way because of box office considerations. That's just not something. And nor should he, Josh. He had quite a run. I know. I agree. I agree. I'm just saying that like Ryan O'Neill's casting is something that that would have been fully, you know, that Kubrick would have been fully on board. Well, he made the movie, so I agree. Yes. So as we said, none of us had seen this film before. Um, and I, I feel like this is, it, it is, Jason, you're right, reassessed as more of a classic, but I feel like it's still lower down on the list of like the major Kubrick films. I wonder because like a lot of filmmakers love this movie. Uh, Scorsese says it's his favorite Kubrick film. I know Kurosawa is a fan uh, from my personal conversations with him. Lars mm. <laughs> von Trier. I mean, like I said, I, you can see it in like Sofia Coppola. I think obviously Wes Anderson, very influenced by this film as well. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, maybe in a certain circle, it has that reputation, but I feel like in a more mainstream or even just a, a, a you know, in a film fan kind of circle, you, you get through 2001 and A Clockwork Orange and The Shining and Spartacus and, you know, a lot of big major films before you get down to this in terms of his most notable works. I guess, Josh, you know, you're the man of the people, I suppose. So. I'm I'm definitely I'm definitely not. So, Dave, was this a, was this one of the Kubricks that you were, uh, you know, most wanting to see? Yeah, it really was, because it's come up on piecing it together quite a few times. Uh, like, you know, Jason was just listing off some of those filmmakers who have been inspired by this movie. And so, yeah, a bunch of my guests have brought it up before. So it's been on my list for a while. And now you can bring it up in a future episode. I will do that. We yeah. hope you do that. <laughs> so, Jason, anything else you want to mention about the background of this film? Josh, have you ever read anything else by Mr. Thackeray? I have not read anything. I mean, the most famous novel of his, of course, is Vanity Fair. And I've seen uh, at least one movie version. I think actually I've seen two movie versions of Vanity Fair, but I, I never actually read the book. Yeah. So, no. I think uh, Kubrick was originally planning on using uh, on filming Vanity Fair, but then moved over to this one. Uh, and I wanted to say, we keep talking about the look. Uh, what do you know about the artist William Hogarth, Josh? That his name is William Hogarth <laughs> and he is an artist. <laughs> they, the word on the street and these things get talked about on the street a lot, Josh, mm, mm -hmm. uh, is that the look of this was very much inspired by these Hogarth paintings and, um, you know, some really cool stuff to get us there using natural light, candlelight and, um, you know keeping it as real as possible. Right. Yeah. The shooting with only candlelight was something that they had to, I think, experiment with a lot of different kinds of kind of lenses and stuff in order to get the right look and to actually be able to illuminate a scene that way and have you be able to see the actors. So I think that's important. But yeah, I would imagine other painters, I mean, Canby, Vincent Canby in his review mentions Gainsborough and Watteau, who I've also not heard of, but I assume those must be painters from this same time period as well. Not Serge Gainsborough. No, no. Serge Gainsborough, I think, is, uh, yeah, not him. Maybe in a future episode, we'll talk about him. So. When we get to uh, some sexy French movies. Totally, like Jean Dielman. Uh, we will come Which back. Which is not French. No, that's true. It was in French, but it's Belgian. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> we'll come back in a moment and talk more of our general thoughts on Barry Lyndon. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this special bonus episode of our season on the films of 1975, 
We are talking about Stanley Kubrick's Barry Lyndon, a favorite of at least some of our listeners as expressed on social media and as expressed by me right now, not a favorite. But uh, Jason, I think you like this more than I did. I did. I did. I, you know, I mean, look, we're all Kubrick fans. How could you not be? So I think I was more intrigued. I can understand how you could be tired of it and uh, just it, it can be exhausting, but he's always just so interesting with what he's doing. It's tough not to want to continue along on the ride, which in this yeah. case was over three hours. Right. And I think as this movie began, I was like, yeah, I think I'm going to be into this. I mean, it has this very dry arch tone. Barry uh, Lyndon was born on the countryside. Yet how did he end up in this castle? After three hours, you will find out. Yes, it has (laughs) the uh, narration there. And interestingly enough, I assumed like, oh, this must be taken directly from the novel. And maybe some of it is in some way. But the novel is written in first person from Barry Lyndon's perspective. So uh, this narrator who is kind of mocking Barry Lyndon in a certain way would have been an invention of Kubrick's. Right. And uh, he's allowed to do that. He is. But I just kind of it has this very literary style to it, that narration. And I just assumed, oh, this must be. Well, something. I mean, if I'm not mistaken, the book is comedic as well, right? Yeah, I think it is maybe more so. I mean, this is this again, it's like very dry, but it also is meant to be dryly humorous, I think. A little bit, but it's a drama through and through. Yeah. Um, but I did find it kind of amusing. I think we have the early scene, the, the sort of inciting incident for all of Barry's misadventures is that he falls in love with his cousin who decides that he's not good enough, basically, and she wants to marry this English officer rather than Barry, who's a, sort of an Irish. He's not a peasant, but he's of lower stature, right? And there's a scene where he's sitting there with his cousin and they're, I don't know whether are they, they're playing a game or they're both reading, I think, or something like that. They're playing the cards, na- I think. They're playing cards. There you go. And the narrator says something like, you know, the overwhelming passion of first love has, you know, been the ruin of many people's lives or something. And then you see, as he talks about this, Barry and the cousin are sitting there like completely neutral expressions on their faces, <laughs> nothing to indicate overwhelming passion whatsoever. <laughs> Well, I mean, did anyone have an overwhelming passion in this time period? Maybe Lord Bullington's hatred of Barry Lyndon was the most passionate thing in the film. Bully! Yes. But I mean, I think that's part of like watching that scene. I thought, okay, well, this is meant to be funny. The contrast here between this this very like reserved sort of upper class Right, the society. Right. Versus the passions that they're they're theoretically feeling. And and Barry is in love with his cousin. Right. I mean, that's a genuine thing. And he goes to great lengths to express that love, including challenging, asking for satisfaction uh, with with this English officer who she plans to marry. So I think we're meant to believe that he really is in love. I, I thought so. And I mean, the way that plays out with the officer and also the way down the line it plays out when. Um, Lyndon's uh, cohort is uh, kicked out of the country. Uh, I thought those were really good, you know, kind of like con man games that they played and, and really effective for the plot. And just in general, I was like, that's that's good. It's good stuff right there. Yeah. And of course, in, in one, Barry is the person being played, right? He thinks he has killed this officer in a duel when actually they've switched out the bullets in the gun for some sort of harmless um, I don't know, like fabric or something like that. And the guy is fine. And then later on, 
with that uh, cohort of his. The Chevalier de Balibert. Exactly. That guy who is uh, a sort of an Irish roustabout. Yeah. Right. Right. Of the same class as Barry. And that's and they're both from Ireland. And that's why they kind of bond. And then Barry is in on it. He's part of planning this scheme to get them both out of the country and get Barry out of his military service obligations and uh, allow them to travel around swindling people at cards. Yeah, I mean, I I think all that stuff's enjoyable. Like we said, like the way Kubrick stages things is amazing, whether it's the battle scenes or just kind of these uh, upper crust parties. So I can, I can see, like I said, where I think you lost the uh, thread here is just that it becomes a little uh, much to endure because of the length of it, eh? Yeah, it does. And I think it just goes on. And and furthermore, I, I also felt like I had a hard time getting a handle on Barry's character because I think in the beginning, we have that sense that he's doing what he's doing because of this kind of true, pure love. He really does love his cousin and he engages in this duel because he's fighting for her and he's not concerned with social class. He's not concerned with propriety or rules or whatever. He's just in love. And then as the movie goes on, he is this this schemer and he eventually gets married to Lady Linden. And that's how he gets this this name. And but he doesn't love her at all. And not only does he not love her, he treats her very cruelly. He clearly uses her in a very blatant way. And I guess I couldn't reconcile it didn't because O'Neill is so blank as an actor. I didn't understand the journey of the character. Yeah. You know, I took that a little differently. I thought that he loved the idea of like, I mean, she's a beautiful woman. She's rich, like, and he could see the upward social mobility, which is, you know, infatuating to him. So I think maybe he thought he loved her and then very quickly realized that he's just, a, a, you know, a playboy and he did treat her very badly. But, you know, he apologized at one point. So I think he gave it a try. It's yeah. just uh, not, not for him, Josh. Not I don't know. It seems like, I mean, again, the way the narrator says that as soon as they get married and Barry has his, you know, he's secured his position that he just completely throws her off. Like, I never got the sense that he loved her at all or even wanted to love her. Hmm. You ever want to love your cousin? Not the cousin. I mean, Lady Linden. No, I'm just talking to you. <laughs> Uh, that had not crossed my mind. <laughs> I feel like, is this a lead into some kind of story from you, Jason? About sleeping cousin with loving? your cousins? Uh, maybe. I don't know enough of your cousins, I don't think. No, oh, you, I, I meant your cousins, but sure, you know, you could. Uh, Which of my cousins should I sleep with? I, I don't know your cousins either. I feel like this is really uh, beyond what we were talking about. But, but no, I mean, I think this is the thing is that I felt like he really did love the cousin. He really did not love Lady Linden. And the sort of disconnect there made it hard for me to understand what kind of person this is. Yeah, I think, um, again, uh, right, when he, when he is chasing the cousin, even she says, you're a boy, Barry, you know, and yeah. he's young and has, doesn't understand the ways of this world. And then he gets burned by his own family because they want upward mobility. So then throughout the rest of the movie, it becomes this recurring theme of everything that he does is to get to upward mobility, including the point after he marries Lady Linden, when his mom comes to visit. And he's like, you know, she says, you have to become a noble. You have to get a title for yourself, because if she divorces you, you'll be penniless again. So that's his motivation for everything. It's all about 
climbing the ladder here, baby. Right. Reed is good. Yes. And, and it I all understand. worked out for Barry Lyndon, right? <laughs> it did. Yeah, everything was great. <laughs> it worked out. It, it, you know, he, he gets a better end in the movie than he does in the novel, apparently. So what uh, happens I, in the novel? He uh, he dies uh, uh, of alcohol related uh, complications, alcoholism related complications in prison. Hmm. So turned out slightly better for him in the movie. Yeah, he gets a like an allowance from Bully Lord Bullington. Yes. He right. it cost him a leg literally, but uh, you know, otherwise, uh, you know, I felt. Uh, how about the scene where uh, Bully interrupts the party where? Lady Linden's playing the piano and he gets the younger kid to clog in in these like very uh, loud shoes. And he talks, he tells this like upper crust society uh, just how bad of a stepfather Barry Linden is. And Barry Linden just beats the crap out of him. That was pretty brutal, that beating that he gives him. It was. And I felt like the point of that scene was to show maybe that as much as Barry is is striving for this upward mobility, he's still this sort of like Irish thug at heart. because. Of course, the consequences of that are he then loses all these connections right. that he was trying to make, that he was spending all this money that he didn't really have in order to make these connections to get his title. And you you get the sense that maybe if he had just restrained himself as, as Bully was insulting him, he might have maintained the position that he was in. That is literally exactly what I got out of it. I didn't just get the sense there. But yeah, that like right. Bully was setting him up, wanting him to take those shots so he could kick him out of you know, that kind of world. And it worked. Yes. Yes, it did. So, yeah, I mean, that's I think also just there's this movie goes on for so long and it's it's kind of episodic. And so it's it's hard to sort of latch on to one particular like ally for Barry or a particular adversary. I mean, he's in one, you know, he starts out, he's in the British Army and he has this this other this officer who is trying to help him out. And then it's like Grogan, I think is his name. I think so. Yeah, I'm not sure. But the guy who uh, is trying to help him out and then he ends up dead, that guy. And then Barry ends up in the Prussian army and he has another guy who's sort of helping him, but sort of exploiting him, Potsdorf. Yeah. And, you know, and then he weasels out of that and then he's got the Chevalier who's helping him and then he leaves the Chevalier to be married to Lady Linden. And none of these people really ever come back. Once we stop seeing them, even the cousin, I waited the whole movie for that to kind of come full circle and for the cousin to come back. And she never does. Well, I I can understand your point. But um, at the same time, maybe, you know, Barry Lyndon is the through line in all these other people's stories. Right. I so mean, maybe it's not Barry Lyndon, the titular character who the movie's really about. It's about all the satellites around Barry Lyndon. Whose name isn't even Barry Lyndon? It's Redmond Barry. Right. He he appropriates that name from Lady Lyndon in a way that that generally does not happen via marriage in that in that era or even now. Yeah. So I think I figured out the movie one for me. And yeah, uh, <laughs> I'll take on another Kubrick movie soon. Yeah. I mean, I think you're not wrong about that, but I think in order for that to really work for me, I'd have to understand and care about those characters more than I did. And, you know, as much as it doesn't necessarily give you insight into Barry's personality, it gives you even less of that insight into those supporting characters. Dave, what did you think? Yeah, I, I don't know. I come in like somewhere right in the middle of you guys. Like I, I, I 
like what it's going for, but it's just kind of a drag to watch. It just kind of, Josh said episodic. That's kind of the word I would have used. Like it's just thing after thing. And, and it, it drags from thing to thing. And uh, I don't know, there, there were some moments though, like especially towards the beginning that I felt like this might've been more on my wavelength, but uh, it, they just kind of go away and then it just becomes just enduring it at that point. Oof. You guys are going to piss off the listeners. I know. I know. Well, I mean, I think, uh, you know, I don't think we, either of us thought that this was a, a worthless experience. I, no. I feel like we've had listener suggestions that we've trashed much more extensively on this show. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I, I feel like I could like watch this again one day when I like really feel like I need to connect with it and maybe get more out of it next time. Yeah. I'm not sure that I would watch this again. And I feel like for me, you know, detractors of Kubrick, the big criticism is always like, oh, he's cold and he's detached or whatever. And I remember feeling that way about some Kubrick movies when I first saw them and then kind of coming around on him on a bit, as we've talked about in our other Kubrick episodes. Um, but this to me brought me right back to not just not being able to engage with Kubrick. And I still feel that way about like 2001. I've seen that twice, including in a theater one time, and I just can't, I can't get into it at all. Mm. Well, sorry. Thank you for apologizing <laughs> on behalf of Stanley Kubrick. I don't know what to tell you, man. You're just, uh, you're just not on his wavelength, I guess, bro. Yeah. I mean, but I feel like sometimes I am, you know, we've talked about his other films, you know, we talked about the shining and that's one where I wasn't at first. And then I came around on it. Yeah. And you and, liked, and I uh, like fear and loathing. I think fear and loathing in Las Vegas, which is a classic <laughs> Kubrick film more than I did. <laughs> So. Fear and desire. Yeah. And, and I mean, when we did that episode, I watched a few early Kubrick films. Along with that, I watched The Killing and Killer's Kiss, and I enjoyed those. So I don't know. I wouldn't say that I'm necessarily just not with Kubrick. I just feel like I'm not with the version of Kubrick that is on display here in this film. Let's rate this thing, Josh. Let's do it. Should we rate it out of five paintings by that guy that you named? Five Hogarths? Five Hogarths. Okay. I gave it three and a half Hogarths, Josh. That's uh. That's a lot of Hogarths on my wall, and uh, I'm going to sell them for a lot of money. Yeah, you're going to be rich and no longer uh, be uh, associating with the likes of us. That's <laughs> been the dream for a long time. Yeah, I, I you know, I'm going to give it two and a half Hogarths. I, I was I was higher on it, you know, halfway through, and then it just wore me out, I think. So that's what I'm going to give it. Dave, how would you rate this? I'm going three right in between you guys. I think uh, I think that's where I land. All right. Well, we'll come back then and talk about the legacy of Barry Lyndon. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year in this special bonus episode of our season on the films of 1975. We are talking about Stanley Kubrick's Barry Lyndon, a favorite, at least of some listeners here, and, and a favorite of a lot of uh, cinephiles, critics, etc. As Jason mentioned, it has been reassessed in a more positive light than maybe it originally was. You know, we've talked about the old sight and sound poll a few times here with uh, movies that are really high up on that list. And on the most recent edition in 2022, this was number 45 on that sight and sound list of the greatest films of all time. And that had been, that was an advancement. It was number 59 in the 2012 poll. So this is a movie that continues to be reassessed even more positively. Uh, I'm not going to hold that against Barry Lyndon that it has climbed up further in the sight and sound poll. 
you, you, are you are you sort of like using that poll as a as a negative barometer for uh -huh. the film's quality and worthiness? Uh, I'm calling bullshit on sight and sound. All right. Uh, <laughs> So we have talked about Kubrick again in a few episodes. So I, I didn't know if we wanted Josh, to kind of. I'm going to take over right now, Josh, because I'm going to talk about a different side of Kubrick because I I've mentioned Lord Bullington multiple times. That was played by Leon Vitale. And I watched the documentary about Leon Vitale called Filmworker, because after this film, after Barry Lyndon, Vitale, who had been a working actor and could have had a career just as a working actor and who's good in this movie, just said, I want to just work for Kubrick. And he became Kubrick's personal assistant. He did everything from video and film transfers to casting to making sure uh, different languages were, uh, you know, uh, different different prints in different languages were correct. It's very interesting. He just gave up his whole life to work for Kubrick and be as close to the genius as he could be. And uh, it's just wild that he did that. Yeah, I was curious. I, we talked about that documentary and uh, I was curious to see it and didn't have a chance to. But it is a, a really weird career arc that that Leon Vitale had. And he continues to be sort of like the the caretaker of Ku or well, not anymore because he's he's, he's still away. trying but of like, yeah, like the Kubrick collections and all these things. Mm -hmm. And it's. You know, it's not like he just didn't have a life. He had three kids and they were like, yeah, he was always working for Stanley and everything. And he just dedicated, you know, he said he wanted to work with him. And and but to work for Kubrick is, you know, uh, a 24 hour a day job. And he was just all in on it. Right. Yeah. I mean, and he was leading the charge really on a lot of these like restorations and you know, later re-releases and things of Kubrick films uh, for, you know, 20 plus years after Kubrick died. I just think it's interesting because he's good. You will you will agree he's good in this movie. He is. Yeah. I mean, a lot of, you know, as my complaint was like a lot of the actors in this film, the supporting actors, they kind of come in and they do a couple things and then they leave and you never see them again. But really, he's perhaps his character is perhaps more consequential than any of these others because he is the one who really you know, he takes it upon himself. He dedicates his whole life to bringing down Barry Lyndon. It's just like, and this is this is a strange uh, comparison, but I'm trying to think of like another young actor who the first time I saw them, like uh, who would go on to have a big career. Like if Shailene Woodley after The Descendants was like, nope, I'm just going to stop acting and just be Alexander Payne's assistant for the rest of my life. It's a very strange move to make. Yeah, it really is. And I mean, he wasn't like super famous necessarily, but yeah, I mean, he's a legit good performer in this film and he gets a lot of showcase moments in this highly acclaimed movie. You could see this being a, a boon for his acting career going forward. And he did. I think he did do a bit of acting after this, but not very much. Yeah, I mean, he plays Red Cloak in the uh, in Eyes Wide Shut, but we've talked about The Shining. He's the one who was in charge of casting Danny and he found the two twins, the girls. So like. You know, this dude, uh, you know, every every interview in that movie, like Matthew Modine's like, yeah, you know, when we did Full Metal Jacket. I probably couldn't have done that without, you know, Leon there and uh, R. Lee Ermey. He like was his acting coach on it. It's just very, very different path he took here. Yeah. And fascinating. I guess a testament too to like this this whole like sphere of influence that Kubrick had as this this uh, like mythical figure. Almost. Right. I think that is true. And, you know, he kept his 
uh, circle as tight as he wanted. And uh, I think he was able to be the master of his domain. He was indeed, yes. So, I mean, uh, Ryan O'Neill, as, as we were saying, you know, this is sort of an outlier for him. He was much more of a like, you know, kind of mainstream like TV actor and, and a character actor and stuff. Um, I mean, he did do some more uh, acclaimed kind of movies in the 70s, including uh, The Driver and A Bridge Too Far, neither of which I've seen. Have you seen those? No, but he did get a, an Academy Award nomination for Love Story for Best Actor. Right. And the, that, which I have also not seen, um, but that's another, you know, kind of more mainstream thing. And I do remember really liking Paper Moon. I know you watched it recently and we're not that into yeah, it. Yeah, it's fine. And I'm a big Bogdanovich, uh, early Bogdanovich guy. I just didn't love it, but he's good in it. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I just I love that dynamic. And I recently watched uh, randomly uh, rewatched Zero Effect with uh, Ben Stiller and Bill Pullman. And he's like the villain in that movie. And, and you know, he pulls it off pretty well. I like that one. Yeah, that is that is a good one. Um, I mean, he's the most certainly high profile actor in this film. Uh, Marissa Berenson, who plays Lady Linden, has had, you know, had a long career in various American films and European films. One of the things that I was kind of amused by is that one of her credits is the 2005 film that I think we talked about in another Kubrick episode, Color Me Kubrick, which is the movie about the con artist who impersonated Stanley Kubrick, played by John Malkovich. Mm. So that's kind of a meta thing that she has a part in that film. And as the Natalia Landauer in Cabaret. Yes, Cabaret, an excellent uh, film, as we talked about with uh, Bob Fosse uh, right. in our All That Jazz episode. The, the narrator, Michael Horton, has appeared in about 140 films and was a very famous stage actor as well. Patrick McGee, the Chevalier. Uh, has worked with Samuel Beckett and Harold Pinter. So, and uh, was uh, was called Beckett's favorite actor. So he uh, was also a Kubrick regular in Clockwork Orange. Well, so that doesn't really make him a regular. He was in two things. Leave me alone, Josh. Well, it kind of <laughs> does, considering how uh, not prolific right. Kubrick was, especially later in his career. Fair. Yeah. So I was looking, I just, I kind of assumed, I was like, oh, there must be a bunch of different uh, Thackeray adaptations. and really. Like 99% of the adaptations of his work are of Vanity Fair. There are so many versions of that, but no one has decided to tackle Barry Lyndon again. But Vanity Fair, like every few years, there's another one. The one I, I remember liking is uh, from 2004, directed by Mira Nair, starring Reese Witherspoon. But there's a bunch of versions, including, as you pointed out, Jason, like a TV miniseries that came just before this, which was why... Kubrick decided not to do it right on the heels of someone else having adapted. Well, that just leaves the space open for Barry Lyndon versus Jean Dielman. Yeah, it sure does. I mean, but again, I feel like this is this source material is ripe for some like streaming miniseries adaptation right now or whatever. I can imagine a Shondaland version of Barry Lyndon. One can only hope maybe it'll uh, connect to Bridgerton in some way. Josh, in 1975, when the film was released in December, Stanley. Kubrick wrote a letter to projectionists that said an infinite amount of care was given to the look of Barry Lyndon, the photography, the sets, the costumes, and in the careful color grading and overall lab quality of the prints and the soundtrack. All of this work is now in your hands and your attention to sharp focus, good sound, and the careful handling of the film will make this effort worthwhile. Yeah, and that's an art that is lost. As we learned in uh, that movie. The one, the thing, the Italians. 
were the things. Cin- Cinema Paradiso. Yeah, that's <laughs> that what you're one. talking about. As Dave cut all that stuff, as we learned in Cinema <laughs> Paradiso, Josh. Right. Yeah. And especially, uh, you know, these days, projectionists, at least in Cinema Paradiso, they were projecting films and they they were taking care to do it properly. But projectionist as like a profession doesn't even really exist anymore. Josh, uh, one other interesting thing. This was shot, of course, in 75 during the Troubles in uh, Ireland, in Northern Ireland. And at one point, someone uh, I, made a threat. Uh, telling Kubrick if he didn't leave the country in 24 hours, they would kill him. And he left within 12 hours. Well, that's smart. I feel like, you know, you expect a story like that if it was about some sort of like tough guy filmmaker where the uh, the outcome would be like, and he didn't leave and he stayed and made the movie because making movies is, you know, the most important thing. And I'm with Stanley Kubrick. If someone threatens my life, unless I leave somewhere, I am leaving. I don't care. I'm leaving. Saving my life. There you go. Yeah. So uh, anything else you want to mention on the legacy of this film, Jason? No. All right. So that is Barry Lyndon. And that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. You can check us out online and on social media. We're at Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram. Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter. AwesomeMovieYear.com. And of course, there's also eatthiscomedy.com. There's also Eat This Comedy on the socials or Jason Harris Comedy or Jay Harris Comedy on the socials. Go for Jason on Letterboxd, where you can one day rate Barry Lyndon versus Jean Dielman. <laughs> I can't wait to see that on a list, a Letterboxd list, along with like Alien versus Predator and Godzilla versus Kong and yeah. Barry Lyndon versus Jean Dielman. Gonna be great. Uh, some old stuff from me at joshbellhateseverything.com. I'm also at joshbellhateseverything on Facebook, at SignalBleed on Twitter, and at SignalBleed on Letterboxd. And you can listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media at PiecingPod. And check out my Letterboxd by David Rosen. And is thank terrible. You- Jason, Jason. always trashing Dave's uh, ratings of current films, like in multiple episodes this season. Uh, Again, thank you to everyone who's uh, signed up for the By David Rosen Patreon. If you're listening to this episode there, if you're listening to this later, sign up. Patreon.com slash By David Rosen. Is that it? That's it. it. That That is is the one. I should know. Sign up there for bonus episodes from us for bonus uh, and early release episodes from Piecing It Together, some awesome stuff from Dave's music career, and many weird challenges that we promised to to do over time if we got more subscribers. We'll get to them eventually. I want to do these challenges, so sign up, you dummies. Yes, indeed. Check us out on there, and thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.